Vine Pair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And uh, Zach, I'm, I'm sure you can probably tell I'm, 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 I'm sick right now, uh, which, you know, I, I, got, I finally got that, like, you know, when the seasons change and it's winter mm-hmm. cold, it just, like, hit me. And it sucks. Like, I hate being sick, man. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't know if there are people. I guess maybe there are actually people out there who like being sick. There's something maybe like they kind of appreciate. There is no one. No one has to like being sick unless you like the attention. I could see that. I think it's the attention. I mean, that's maybe the that's one thing. But I was saying, like, I think there are people who don't. No one wants to be like, well, maybe no. I don't think anyone wants to be like really sick. But I think there are people who kind of relish the excuse to like stay in bed, you know, like have soup, drink tea, watch you know, streaming video for eight hours straight and no one can really call them out for it in a way that you might if someone made that choice otherwise. But I agree with you, man. I have too much going on in my life to be sick. And I, I was actually sick this past weekend. So so I feel your pain. I got sick right as my wife was leaving for an international trip, which with a 18 month oh, old is a lot of fun. <laughs> so was, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but like, do you... You don't do you drink when you're sick? Do you not drink when you're sick? I did not this time for sure. It depends a little bit how sick I am. Yeah. I think we I think I think when we talked on this before, that was my big thing is it's like this time I had like a fever, like chills, sweats, all the gross stuff. And I was like, I wanted nothing to do with anything. I didn't want to eat, I didn't want to drink. I mean I had water, but that's about it. But yeah. You know what I Yeah, you know what I randomly crave though, which I'm eating right now, so I apologize, is matzo ball soup. Oh yeah. And like protein. And for me, there's a cat's is really close. Uh-huh. Uh, to my my apartment in Brooklyn, so Katz has opened a Brooklyn location, uh, which is awesome. Yeah, and uh, I like crave pastrami. There you go. Like I don't know. There's something about my body being like must have, and I'm not like I'm not like a huge meat eater, but my body's like I must have meat to fight cold. Yeah, that I'm like okay, well, you'll get that. I'll get you the meat. <laughs> All good. Is there, yeah. like, but I, you're right. Like I, I know some people are like, oh no, I really, I really need whiskey when I dr- when I'm I'm sick. Or I really need hot ties. Like I actually don't want any of that at all. Yeah. I feel like it winds up making me feel worse. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, I'm. It's one of those things where like it really depends. If I'm just a little bit sick, then sometimes yeah, then I, then I kind of talk myself into like the hot toddy, uh, like if I have a little bit of a cold. But when I'm any sicker than that, and it's just like yeah, the thought of combining how I when I already feel like shit and then being like. Because I also feel like it's one of those things where, like, if you do drink when you're sick, like, one drink is, like, the equivalent of three in terms of how it, for me at least, how it affects my, like, my body and how I feel later. And I'm like, I don't want to be, like, the last thing I want to be is sick legitimately and also, like, hungover. That's just, ugh, sounds awful. Oh, it's the worst. But I definitely did relish that, like, glass of wine after a couple days after feeling better. I was like, man, this <laughs> this glass of Pinot Noir tastes extra good um, because I haven't had Oh, yeah, you're like, days. thank you, wine. Yes. Uh, so, hey, I have a drinks-related question for you, which is appropriate because this is okay. a drinks-related podcast. So we are in December now. How do you feel about eggnog? Honestly, we should bring Aaron Goldfarb on here to talk about eggnog. He's oh, just, yeah? uh, you know, one of our writers who just had his eggnog recipe featured in the New York Times because uh, he loves that it. That rag. Uh, I, I, I'll say I don't – I haven't had enough of it to like it, so I don't. Hmm. But there are people who are like, look, man, if you've had some good nog, then you will like eggnog. First of all, like – I, I I never had a lot of it, so I just it, it's not like a thing that I'm I'm comfortable with. And then I just I find the whole concoction a little weird, like egg yolks, milk, you know, a, a mix of you know whiskey, rum, brandy, depending on what you want to do. Like I just for me, I, it's not my thing. But again, like I'm willing to admit that I have not probably had a good one, so maybe I should give another try. But I I would say for now, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty not in the eggnog camp. 
So I was very much in, in that same sort of camp for a long time. I mean, I didn't grow up having eggnog. It wasn't like a thing that my family did. It wasn't like, and, and like when I did have eggnog, it was, you know, the sort of like uh, store-bought, non-alcoholic, basically just sort of like thick, sweet, you know, sort of seasoned milk, which is fine. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's pretty tasty, but it's not really the the cocktail as as is it actually exists. And then uh, when I was bartending years and years ago, um, we decided one. I I decided because I wanted to find out about it that I was going to put um, eggnog on our like December cocktail list, which meant that like I had to make eggnog uh, a couple times a week basically to make sure that it was still good. And, you know, and fresh and all that, because uh, <laughs> unfresh eggnog is disgusting um, and probably bad for you. But and, and when I it was when I started kind of playing around with the recipe and, and making it myself and, and sort of actually working with it that I came to really, really love it. And I don't make it that often. I mean, it's a, a fair bit of work to do at home. And it's also like, I mean, eggnog is delicious, but it is, I mean... There are, it is very calorically dense, as you mentioned. It's got like heavy cream and egg yolks in it, so it's not exactly like an easy sipping beverage. Uh, but man, when you get it right, and and I feel pretty good about my recipe at this point, having done it for a while, it is really fucking good. Like one of them every other day is about as much as I can con- as I can stand. Um, but my wife is a big fan, um, and so that always makes she it, really um, is. Oh, oh yeah, no, she she so she grew up with eggnog. She grew up in Wisconsin, and you know it's the brandy capital of the U.S. And so like eggnog, you know, like a brandy eggnog is like a very much a holiday thing for her. Um, and so for her, it's it's you know that I mean I don't know exactly what age she started drinking it. Um, I'm 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 afraid to ask, but um, but definitely before she was 21. So it definitely takes her back to her well, let's not say childhood, but at least adolescence. You know, the thing I think about eggnog is really interesting. Is people like Aaron actually claim that it gets better if you age it. Hmm. That isn't so. Interesting Aaron thought. actually has a jar of eggnog in his fridge here in Brooklyn. I mean, now he is a cocktail writer. That is five years old. I am and deeply he says skeptical. It's even better. I am deep. I mean, I, I, Aaron is an excellent writer, so I don't actually doubt him. But man, that I, the thought of of drinking five year old dairy is really, really hard for me to get my head around. So, so the scientists, including Aaron, who he, I mean, I guess he's not a scientist, but the scientists he's talked to, basically all say that the alcohol kills all bacteria. Huh. So any bacteria that would form form in the nog dies and that what happens is the eggnog like evens out and basically becomes much smoother and harmonious mm-hmm. and so he said while like he has a, a you know a christmas party every year and he's like while he won't obviously serve the five-year-old every year at the christmas party he sometimes will serve a one-year-old to people who are interested but at least one that's a few weeks old to everyone else because huh. he's even making it like two to three days in advance, I mean, two to three weeks in advance really like makes the eggnog much more palatable because I guess when you make it fresh, it really is so just like overtly eggy and creamy that for a lot of people, it's like I can have like two or three sips and I don't want any more. But that, you know, the the longer it sits, the more it really does become like this really mellow, very interesting drink. Um, I actually think I'd be more willing to try that first than just another fresh eggnog because again, like I don't 
the thought of dairy, like all that dairy with alcohol, is just like not my thing. Yeah. Well, I guess I mean the, the sort of principle there is the same thing that makes like something like you know a ver- various brands of Irish creams shelf stable. Like you buy those and they obviously have dairy in them, but like you buy them at the liquor store and they're not in the fridge. So presumably there's something. I mean, also I'm sure they're ultra pasteurized and stuff. I don't know. It's obviously not what you're going to do at home with your eggnog, but but I mean there is something to that idea that a, a high enough alcohol content is going to create an environment where the you know where whatever bacteria can't survive. I don't know. I'm curious. Maybe I'll go home and make some eggnog, and uh, and then we can uh, I can fridge age it for uh, until my wife gets home, and we'll see what she thinks. Um, and if she gets sick, then I can just blame it on her travels. So it sounds like a win win. Yeah, I mean, me. I'm serious. He says. I mean, let me let me look. Aged eggnog. I'm sure he's written about it before. Um, oh, Alton Brown's written about it as well. Yeah. Um, he wrote about it in 2014. The Art of Eating magazine aged eggnog has written about it. Yeah, Serious Eats wrote about it. I mean, of course, Serious Eats wrote about it. Yeah, it sounds like they said they aged it for a year. Age eggnog recipe. I mean, so, so apparently it's a thing, man. Like, Cooks Illustrated have written about it. So, let's see. Okay, so I mean, Jay Kenji Lopez, all, you know him, he's like the food scientist for Serious Eats. He's like an amazing writer. He also writes for New York Times. So basically, he says, like, it's, what does he say in his article? Basically, he says, yeah, like, for the last year, he's been aging his eggnog, and it's amazing. Oh, cool. And then it's actually safe. Yeah. So he says, basically, statistically, one out of only 20,000 eggs sold in the U.S. is contaminated with salmonella. Yeah. So actually, you know, like, it's very, very small. And then microbiologists have proved in lab conditions that nothing happens to it. So, yes, it's safe. And basically, they say that, like, it's, yeah, it's really delicious. All right. Well, maybe next year's uh, holiday podcast can feature a one-year-old eggnog tasting. But the biggest downside to me is I don't have that much fridge space. Like, I don't understand how you put, like, bottles of eggnog away and just, like, take up that space in your fridge for a year. But but good for Aaron, I guess. Yeah. So, apparently, it – so, basically, everyone says, like, it mellows the flavors mm-hmm. and it makes it smoother. Mm-hmm. But but some people think that the booze flavors may come forward a little bit more. Interesting. But yeah. I mean, like, Alton Brown on his blog – basically says his peak is aging it between four and six months before serving it. Okay. So you're making your eggnog. In so the I don't know, man, if, any, if anyone listening here wants to like age some nog and tell us about it, I'm like down to see if like all these people are right. And we are crazy to have not tried it already. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be, we would love to hear from you. Uh, I think you can reach us podcast at vinepair.com uh, with an email or uh, find us on the various social media platforms and let us know. I would, I would be very curious. And if you're in the Seattle area and you happen to have that, special bottle of eggnog you've been squirreling away invite me over i'll come give it a taste um i promise i won't drink all of it uh <laughs> but adam i also have i have one other question for you uh since we're just yes. we're, we're sort of answering questions and i know this, we is, the gra- few- this is the grab bag episode yeah, it's a grab have, bag episode we have a few reader questions to get to also but but i had one um that, that kind of comes out of this eggnog question which is you know it's also the this sort of i i guess the holiday season or however you want to term it in your own mind but then if not eggnog is there a drink for you that is like synonymous with this time of year that for you is like and and i i'm going to say off the bat that i know i know what your answer probably is which is probably just like whiskey neat or with a with an ice cube but but outside of that an actual cocktail or something else that feels like you know this time of year uh, is your drink i would say i have two drinks of choice one drink would be obviously like this time of year for me champagne okay 
Um, and that's not just because I'm trying to be like, oh, I'm bougie. Um, but, you know, in our traditions of Hanukkah, I uh, I do make a lot of like fried food, like oh, yeah. latkes and stuff like that. And I just find like that's it, it goes really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's for me one that I really associate. And then like we do a big um, like what we call like a big like friends Chinese Christmas dinner basically with all of our friends that wind up staying in New York around this time of year, you know, no matter what your religious beliefs are. Um, we all go to this to Peking duck house and have a massive meal together. Nice. Um, and usually there's lots of champagne there. So yeah. I associate it with that as well. Um, I do think of the hot toddy a lot. It's funny. Like, I do like, I like a hot toddy, even if I'm, you know, not sick. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually like it more when I'm not sick. Yeah, you can actually taste it. And then uh and then the God, I don't know, man. Maybe a Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not like any of these. It's funny, all of these like really traditionally holiday drinks, like eggnog and hot buttered rum and stuff like that. Like I've never really had, nor do I have much interest in. Mm-hmm. And you know the thing that I hate, which I think we've talked about before, is I really, really hate mold wine or vin brule, as you would say in italian like i i really hate mulled wine yeah i hate it what about you well so i think for me the uh, several of the things you mentioned i would agree with but I, I think the other sort of drink that i would add i am definitely partial to a sort of really uh sort of heavy winter beer this time of year um you know whether it's a you know sort of a technically what, whatever you call a winter warmer or, or whatever term but basically think something in the realm of uh you know definitely a porter or stout even like an imperial porter or stout something that's definitely like dense pretty boozy like you can't see through at all and may have some sort of like holiday spices in it or not i'm i'm kind of it depends i have a limited tolerance for that you know the downside to those things is you can again like kind of like eggnog you can only have a little bit at least for me before um it feels overwhelming both from an alcohol standpoint and just sort of a heaviness standpoint. But I do really find myself drawn to those kinds of uh, beers this time of year, um, you know, especially when, you know, it's it's cold out. And there's something there's something to me that is uh, as much as hot beverages are appealing in this time of year, and they certainly are. And, and I'm more of a like you, more of a hot toddy person than a hot butter rum person. I, dairy in my drinks is rarely something I enjoy. But um, but for me, there's something about the like there's something about the, I don't know, I guess it's like the civilized nature in a way of being able to have a cold drink when it's cold out and not be cold that I enjoy. Like it's sort of like a middle finger to the weather, which I sometimes like to do. Um, and, and then for me, it's also, you know, a middle it, figure to the weather. That's well, you know, you got to sometimes be able to do that, especially when, uh, when the weather gives you nothing but rain and gray and all that, uh, as it is wont to do in Seattle this time of year. And, uh, the other, the other thing that I, I sort of find myself gravitating towards in terms of, uh, drinks this time of year that is not necessarily something that I drink a lot of is kind of, uh, the, you know, to kind of come back to another topic we've covered before, I do find myself drawn to sort of like tiki this time of year too, like that escape from the winter, you know, those tropical flavors. Oh, like you, so you, you go straight for tiki, like right off the bat. I think so. You know, when I go for cocktails, it's not to me, those kind of drinks actually don't usually appeal to me in the summer besides like the very, very sort of light 
fresh kind of like a daiquiri or something like that. But to me, if I want, you know, like a Mai Tai is not a drink I would want to drink in August. It's a drink I want to drink in January or in, or in December where, where it feels much more like I'm being, I'm transporting myself through the beverage to somewhere warm and tropical or, you know, in the case of Tiki, it's not necessarily a specific place, but maybe a mindset at, at a minimum. And so to me, it's kind of, the, that's, this is the time of year when those drinks start to really appeal to me because, because they do feel like a form of escapism, which I appreciate. Uh, that's really cool. That's really cool. So you want to jump into some reader mail? I think it's probably time for us to to get to what those of you actually listening want to hear us answer as opposed to just what we want to talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, so first of all, um, podcast at com is the easiest way for you to get these questions into us. Um, it's, you know, we do read all the emails that you all send and we also do really take them seriously and want to answer as many of these questions as possible. So if you are interested in, you know, anything about uh, the world of drinks and you want to ask a question, shoot us an email and we are happy to try to answer it for sure. So here are some of the questions that we've gotten recently. Um, One of the questions that came in very recently, again, like I'm not going to give people's real names unless they, uh, you know, have given me permission, but so this is from a listener who works for a distributor in, uh, basically Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. And he asked a bunch of different really cool questions. But one of the questions I thought was really interesting, and I think speaks to the perspective that a lot of people potentially have outside of New York, is basically said natural wine has seemed to take off a lot in New York City. What do you attribute that uh, explosion of natural wine to? Is it just Pascaline or is it more than that? I thought that was super interesting. Now, Zach, you are not in uh, New York, but what do you think you attribute the, the success of natural wine to? Quickly, we don't have, to have a full debate on natural wine, good or bad. Just like it's 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 ability to take off. It's gonna be a value neutral comment. So I think that the things that have made it um, kind of take off are one, it feels new, and I think there's always going to be a certain interest um, in all levels of, of of the wine industry in novelty. Um, so you're talking about in a lot of cases, um, natural wines coming from new producers, often sort of less discovered parts of the wine world um, geographically new producers or at least producers who are not common knowledge and so that's one part of it 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 feels like a chance to discover something and i think wine sometimes suffers from this idea correct or otherwise that it's all been discovered already and that and that there's there's there aren't a lot of new frontiers to find and so anytime someone does find one um or thinks they found one uh there is something that is appealing about that i think it also you know look we've talked about this before on the podcast there there is something about the very 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 powerful appeal of that word natural and and that means a lot to people. Whether it means a lot in the context of natural wine, I'm not going to get into, but it definitely resonates. You know, it, it is something that that draws people in. And I can speak just from personal experience with people I know who have gotten, you know, who, let's say, I know a number of people in the restaurant industry in, in Seattle who were not necessarily all that interested in wine and that this idea of natural wine has drawn them um, in more to, to talk about. I did a natural wine class with um, my restaurant group and we got some people who came to it, you know, people who work for us who have not come to any of my other classes. And it was a topic that was much more of interest to them than a class on Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. And and I won't, again, I won't say anything, I won't make any comments about that. Um, but I think that's, that is definitely, there's definitely some truth to the idea that it is reaching a different demographic than wine generally was reaching prior. So another uh theory I have, I think all of what you're saying is actually very spot on. Another theory that's, that's been floated to me by a bunch of people um, that I think is pretty uh, insightful is this idea that, so like 
natural wine is pretty aggressive in its flavors <clears throat> and those flavors are pretty easy to describe. So for, I mean, look, this isn't all natural wine. I'm talking more like, let's say if we're saying natty wine, mm-hmm. right? Like that natty, you know, dirty, funky stuff. That's what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about, again, if we're going to get into this debate about, oh, but I mean, you know, there's so many like amazing ground crew burgundies that are natural. Yeah, that's fine. Cool. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. But with these like more like natty, dirty wines, you can very easily say like to a consumer as the person selling the wine, hey, this this tastes a lot like basically, you know, a green apple cider. And pretty much if you tell them that, they will taste that in the wine. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, you know, this wine really is this, this, this light red tastes a lot like a watermelon Jolly Rancher. And when they taste that, they probably will also, you know, taste a watermelon Jolly Rancher. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I do think that the wines are much more easy to perceive like flavors we're really used to, whether it's like sour cherry or, you know, bubblegum berry or bright strawberry, things like that, that, you know, make, make it, I guess you more comfortable in saying, oh yeah, I got that too. So maybe I do know something about wine. Maybe I can't appreciate these kinds of wines and maybe because they're natural, that's why I can. Right. So I do think that there is something about that as well, because like, let's be honest with these like really fine wines out there, we use fucking bullshit tasting notes. And we usually use like yeah. 20 of them. You know, I was, I was talking about that yesterday, like musk, what the fuck is musk? <laughs> you know, and like telling that to a consumer is the most ridiculous thing ever or like sandalwood and cigar box. Yeah. I mean, and the way that people are talking about natural wine is just, you know, really a way more accessible way to talk about wine. You know, a lot of people talk about natural wine. It's like, yo, this is going to be like, you know, this bright sour cherry flavor, you know, that's just bursting with, with goose, you know, juicy gushers. And you're like, I totally get that. Yeah. It's about updating language too, right? Like that's part of what we were talking about here is, you know, the, the reference to cigar box and sandalwood maybe made sense to a certain generation a certain life experience whereas gushers make sense to us and people younger than us because we had them as kids and and so you know that's i mean some of what's going on with natural wine i think is just a a part of a broader generational update of everything you know uh lexicon and and all that And, and i think that's a really important thing to take note of is that you know it may be happening most um aggressively or most um, visibly within the natural wine community. But but it's a conversation that needs to happen as, you know, our generation and generation, you know, even the generation below us moves into sort of this important part in the wine economy. The the language that's used to talk about wine has to reflect the language that we use. I mean, that's, I think, something that you and I try to do and, and feel strongly about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So uh, What's what's another question we've gotten from a reader? So we got a question a little while back from a reader, um, from a listener who is uh, who was asking kind of about this whole idea of red blends, and and I think you know to his his conceit was kind of that this idea of red blends is there's something that they're they're really, um, you know the they're they're killing wine in the U, in the U.S. and I'm not sure that I agree entirely with his conceit, so so I'm not going to necessarily say that. But what he's really talking about is what we've talked about in some sense um, in it's a few other episodes, which is kind of this idea of the sort of unexplained red blend with a catchy graphic on the front and a in a proprietary name and probably who knows what else in it and i think it's important that you know i wanted to answer this this uh this uh, listener's question and, and just talk a little bit about sort of how you and i maybe in in general kind of sort these wines out of the things that we consider i don't know whether that's you know the the most famous examples um or some of the the ones that are kind of piggybacking on the trend it's a very interesting question. I mean, look, I think that they are here to stay. 
think if you look at data, the data continues to support that the red blends will continue to grow and have continued to grow in their popularity over the last decade. Uh, I don't think that they're going to stop anytime soon. I think what's interesting is that we're referring to them actually as red blends. Um, so almost like a varietal, you know what I mean? Like, do you get that in the restaurant? Someone say to you, I want a red blend. Oh yeah. When I ask people what they like, they say, oh, I like red blends. And it's, I mean, that does tell me something. It's a, a useful piece of information. Of course, you know, there's this sort of part of me that wants to be like, well, like what kind of red blend are we talking? You know, do you like Bordeaux? Do you like a Southern Rome blend? Or do you mean you like, you know, menage a trois? They usually mean that, by the way. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, so I think I think what's really interesting about the red blend category is that it also – so it's become a, a, a name of a category, right? Like a, almost like a varietal. People say that like a red blend in the same way they say they're like Cabernet or uh, you know Sauvignon Blanc. But also really it only represents like a, cat, a, a kind of wine made in a few regions of the world. Mostly I think when most consumers say they like red blends, they mean California. Yeah. Maybe some from your neck of the woods, but I don't think as much. Maybe some from Australia, but again, I don't think as much. I really think it's California. And my theory as to the explosion of red blends has a lot to do with like the downfall or not downfall, but sort of lack of interest in Zinfandel. I think there's a lot of producers Mm. that were looking for what to do with Zinfandel. And so they're like, well, we can just blend it with some Merlot, which was also declining, and Syrah and make this like – really juicy, very accessible, very light in tannins as a consumer might refer to as smooth wine that also because we're California is ripe and high in sugar and people will dig it. And I think that's exactly what happened. And if you look at, you know, basically the last decade, and this is because we've been talking a lot about this for, uh, you know, a bunch of year, decade in review articles that are coming out this month on, you know, on the site. In 2011, a wine came out called Apothic. Mm-hmm. And Apothic, I think, is one of the quintessential red blends. And it's owned by one of the largest wine companies in the world, Gallo. And Gallo put a ton of money behind this wine, and the wine took off. And I mean, I remember even – I saw when I was doing research, even in 2013, Jamie Good, one of our one of our writers for the site, was writing about it on his blog because it was everywhere. Yeah, And I think people just started thinking that these these wines sort of became – the easy go-to. And again, like if you look at our data that that we have, like our proprietary data, you continue to see the interest in red blends among all age groups and all consumer sets growing. Mm-hmm. And what I also think is really interesting is that red blends tend to also be very gendered, either male or female. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you find red blends that are that, that you walk into a store and like they're super masculine. It's like Heart Crusher, Eater Meat, Die, 1002 yeah. Wine. You know what I mean? Like, man, 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 wine. And then you walk in and there's like a, a wine that's a red blend that's like on the other side of the spectrum, like super, super, super gendered towards females, which is both in both regards ridiculous. You know, like, you know, high heel, high heel shoe red blend. It's so fucking stupid. Yeah. But the fact is that like everyone across the country loves these wines. Yeah. And – you know, I don't I don't see the popularity slowing at all anytime soon. And I don't know whether or not it's good or bad for overall wine. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it does get people drinking wine, which I think is a good thing. Um, 
But, you know, I do think that for most people, this is the wine they drink without food. This is the wine they drink while they sit in front of Netflix or while they watch sports or they hang out with friends and play, you know, and have game night. I don't think it's a wine they necessarily, you know, say, oh, we're about to bottle. I hope we are having a nice dinner. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I also, like I said, don't know if it's necessarily completely a bad thing for the industry. Yeah, I think I think the only two points I want to add or sort of, um, you know, kind of amend or whatever there. One is I think that there is something about this idea of a wine creating a sort of a brand identity and brand loyalty that is not totally new. Obviously, in some sense, many of the famous wines in the world are brands or have been viewed as brands and throughout history. And so that that has always been something that people have turned to as a way to kind of know what to buy. But this is sort of a new a new version of it, because, you know, the part of the appeal of a lot of these red blends is consistency first and foremost it's a sort of safety um it's a it's you know it's the appeal of any sort of you know well-marketed uh engineered product you know um the there's a great point in um in a book that came out a few years ago um by uh cork dork by bianca bosker and she talks about the sort of you know the focus group uh testing that they did that one i think treasury in this case did to create sledgehammer which is like the perfect example of one of these like you know obviously aimed at men bottles of like this red blend that is kind of generic but has you know the sort of packaging and and set of descriptors that are meant to appeal to sort of traditionally masculine consumers and it's fascinating it's a little horrifying too to to think about just how you know sort of frankenstein this whole product is because it's it's not just you know wine it's it's a lot of additives and things like that that are allowed to be added to wine and are some cases grape derived but are not really what we think of as you know in the sort of you know uh sort of uh idyllic vision of what winemaking is but but it is true that like at the same time we talk a lot about and you know i've talked about this in a variety of facets like there has to be wine in some ways that are that is available and accessible to a whole range of people at a whole range of price points all over the country for wine to be you know sort of as prominent in the culture as we want it to be and that means that some of these things kind of have to exist um you know and that if there was no culture of you know, if there had been no culture of of macro brew beer, there would have. If there had not been a nation of beer drinkers, there would not have eventually been a nation of craft beer drinkers. And I think the same thing is true with wine. In some sense, you know, this country was not a wine drinking country until relatively recently in any real way. And while we may sort of look at some of these wines and turn our nose up at them, and I think sort of justifiably in a lot of cases, it's certainly true that that there is some benefit, I think, in the long run for the wine industry as a whole to having more people drinking wine, because while not every one of those people will put down the apothec and pick up, you know, something much more, uh, let's say, specific, um, but some of them will, I think, over time. Cool. cool. All right. Next question. This one from a reader uh, down south. I've been seeing a lot of gin in my local liquor store, way more local varieties as well, and much more craft. Do you guys think that gin is going to explode? Well, yeah, I do. I think <laughs> it's already there. I mean, I think uh, I think gin is very much ripe to explode. Uh, you know, even more than it already has. I think it's sort of like again, if you look at trends, we see gin growing. Um, you know, basically right behind tequila and bourbon or whiskey in general as like in popularity amongst uh, the readers of vine pair. Um, I think, you know, from classic cocktails like the martini to the gin and tonic, which obviously as everyone knows swept Europe, but really hasn't come to the U S yet in the fervor that it, you know, attacked Europe in the last few years. I think, I think gin really has a huge amount of potential here. And I think you're going to see a lot of 
the big spirits companies investing very heavily in gin in the coming months, especially as we move into the summer of 2020. I, the, look, the spike seltzer boom only helps the gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. Um, only helps the gin and tonic. And so I think you're going to see a lot of people attaching themselves to that kind of messaging. Yeah, and I think with gin, you know, one of the cool things about it is there we've we've sort of seen this interesting diversification in American gin, um, and you I think you've seen it also in in European gin, where you really are seeing people realize, hey, look, you know, this this spirit as a distiller gives me a platform to really emphasize some of what's going on around me, and I can. Obviously, you know, there's sort of a core juniper-based flavor to gin that you can't really totally get away from, I don't think, at least not not honestly call it gin. But what you choose to add to it, the other botanicals and and fruits and things you decide to kind of add to the to the uh, distillate or, or to flavor with, you get have a lot of leeway. And it's really interesting. You know, I've had the chance to try some gins from um, various parts of the country. And and there is a cool element to this idea of gin as a, as able to capture some of the sort of local flora of a of a place, whether that's, you know, certain things in Southern California or Northern California, things in the Midwest, here in the Pacific Northwest, in the Southeast, wherever. Um, and I think that is a cool thing that, you know, people are really looking to, to do in, in some cases with gin is capture that. And then something like the gin and tonic is a really perfect uh, vehicle to then enjoy that those flavors. You know, it's it's the kind of cocktail that allows you to enjoy the flavors within the gin while mellowing them a little bit, opening them up a little bit. Um, and while some of these uh, gins that I have tried and quite enjoyed might not be the perfect choice for your for every gin cocktail, you might not want to put them in a martini or in a Negroni in some cases, um, or you'd have to think very carefully about how you match them up with the other flavors. But but in that more um, open and transparent form, I think they can be really uh, delicious and, and really interesting and a really interesting kind of encapsulation of a place. Cool. Uh, Zach, do you have any other reader questions? So I have one more that we we a little bit talked about when we talked to Bobby Stuckey, but I think we kind of asked him this question, and I think the, the reader kind of also wanted us to, or the listener wanted us to answer them as well. And it was just talking this sort of question about maintaining a sense of, as you learn more about spirits and, and wine and beer, how do you keep from being a jerk about it? And I think it's a good it's a good question for us. It's important for us to always keep in mind. I think you know it's it's hard when you are in our position sometimes to not occasionally come off as a little bit um, you know know it ally or something. Um, and so I wanted to see if you had any thoughts about this, and, and I have a couple of my own to share. So, so I think I think there's a few things. I think one of the things is like don't offer knowledge unless it's asked for. So like if you especially when you're around your friends, right? If your friends know that you are a person that's into this stuff or works in this, in these areas, like don't offer the knowledge unless it's asked for it really, you come off like a prick basically. Um, and I know you don't mean to, but it's like, she's like that person who like, you're sitting there trying to watch, you know, a football game and they're, and they're telling you all the plays that they're running. Right. It's like, look, if I don't know what plays they're running, I don't really care. Right? I'm enjoying the game or, you know, that person who, when you're at the art gallery, start trying to quiz you on how much you understand the methods in which the art was created. Um, don't be that person. It's just like not cool. Now, if you have that expertise and someone asks you for it, I think you should 100% offer up the expertise and try to be as accessible as possible in the way that you talk about it, right? So, you know, say like, this is why some people get this or some people say that they will taste that or yada, yada, yada. But don't make the person feel bad if they don't perceive those flavors or if they don't understand why. Like, let's say that you pour this amazing scotch that you think is incredible and they really don't get it. They don't really think it's that great. Like, don't make them feel bad. That's also like, really not cool. Um, the other thing I would say that I, I notice a lot amongst people who get into spirits 
and wine and beer is like, don't be a snob when you go out, especially when someone else has picked a place you're going and you don't like the list or the beers on draft or whatever. Like, just suck it up and order something. Like, I I get really annoyed with people who I know are like experts in the space who will go out to get a drink and they look at the wine and be like, you know, I'll just I'll I'll just have a water, or I'll just have a whiskey soda, or and I, and like I know immediately they didn't like the wine list. You know, or we'll go to we'll go to a beer bar and they'll look at the draft lines and they'll be like, uh, do you guys have anything else? <laughs> like just order something. Yeah. Because all like unfortunately, whether or not I understand you're like, oh, I, I know now I don't want to drink bad stuff. I get it. But like because this entire industry of alcohol ha- has this, you know, perception that people who know a lot are are automatically snobs. You're going to be viewed as a snob by everyone else, and it's just not worth it. So do us all a favor and just be the bigger person and just get a drink. Get something. Find something to drink that you know you don't have to love, but you also don't have to be a, a jerk about. And those are like the big, my biggest pet peeves. And then the third one I would say in terms of trying to not be a snob is if someone brings something over to your house that you do not like – do not put it in the corner or hide it. Just open it. Pour yourself a glass. Walk away. Drink it slowly. Whatever it is you want to do. But don't make the person feel bad that they brought something that you don't approve of. That is also like not cool. You know, I have friends all the time say to me like, it's really hard bringing beer over to your house or really hard bringing wine over to your house or whatever because I, I know you probably know it and either like it or don't like it. And like the thing I do immediately to try to like 100% just – bring down the situation and make everyone feel cool. I'm like, let's try it right now. Yeah. And we'll pop the beer. We'll pop the bottle immediately. I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. Thank you so much for bringing it. Just so that there's not all this tension. I want to diffuse the situation immediately. And I think those are things that everyone can remember to really not come off looking like someone who is a snob, even though I understand sometimes you're really not trying to be, but everyone else is going to think that's what you're doing. Yeah. I think I I want to echo uh, very strongly the the last point you made, which is like just fucking drink it. Like step one, just fucking drink it. Like it's not you're <laughs> there's no, presumably no one is bringing anything that's going to actually cause you harm. And if you end up having to drink, whether it's one of the red blends that we discussed in the last uh, question or uh, or something else that's just not to your liking, like so what? Choke it down. Like you have. undoubtedly in your life made a worse drinking decision than this um, probably in the last week frankly for some of you out there and uh, you will be fine and you will not make your guests feel like a jerk Uh, you will not make your friends feel like uh, like you're an asshole like those are like those are important things to keep in mind that like your growing body of knowledge does not give you permission to be an asshole to the people around you I think the other two things I would add one is in addition to sort of this whole thing about not being a, a snob about where you go and, and how you behave, don't be an asshole to the people serving you either. Like, if you go to a very nice restaurant with a, a very experienced sommelier or sommelier team and you want to have an in-depth conversation with them about the wine list, then that's fine. That's the deal, right? That's part of what you're paying for. They're expecting that. But please don't go to, like, a neighborhood, your neighborhood restaurant and get into a long conversation asking questions of your server about very specific things about the wine that, like, they're frankly probably not going to know. They're not expected to know it, and it's unreasonable of you to treat them like they're your 
contemporary, especially if you are, you know, relatively knowledgeable, whether that's wine, beers, cocktails, whatever. Don't ask for super obscure cocktails at bars that are clearly not set up to accommodate it or they're going to have to look it up. You know, save that shit for your house or save it for when you go to the places that are designed for it. And those places exist. And so I think part of it is just recognizing that like, like anything else, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life. Like, I am not a music person. Like I like listening to music, but I don't care about music in any kind of meaningful way. And so when I'm around people <laughs> in my in my life who are really into music and like, you know, the sort of like they love to talk about like who's in what band and the history of a band and and oh, what were their influences? And I, my eyes glaze over. And so I feel their pain when, you know, if I were to do that about wine or or something like that, and I recognize that they're they're probably not interested. And so in, like you said, unless they ask, unless someone asks you for specific information, generally speaking, you can keep it to yourself. And again, don't make, you know, just like you wouldn't want to make, you know, you, you just don't want to make the people around you look at you like you're a jerk because i mean presumably you don't want that I right mean, if you if you want to be a jerk then you don't actually need us to give you any advice because you are probably doing a great job of it i think the one last thing i will say is that for me an important thing to know too is the most dangerous person in this in this sort of realm is the person who's learned just enough, right? Who knows enough to know more than the people around them, but hasn't kind of gotten to the point in their learning where they go, oh shit, no matter how much you learn, you will never know even a fraction of what there is to know about the world of of any of these uh, beverages, whether it's wine, beer, spirits, et cetera. And once you get to that point, which I think like, I certainly feel like I've gotten to that point where I'm like, I will never know it all. So I'm, I have no incentive to act like a know-it-all because Someone can always call me out. I mean, there's no, there's never going to be a point where I'm going to say, oh, yes, I know the answer to all your questions. And I don't want to, frankly. That would be boring. So so I think just keep that perspective, right? As you're learning more, and it's, again, very, very – it's a very intoxicating thing, pun sort of intended. Um, you got to be – you got to be careful, and you got to re- remember that – inevitably you do not know it all you will not know it all you should not hope to know it all and that the best to best way to approach any of this is to be humble and if you come at it with humility and you approach your own knowledge with humility then i think pe- the people around you will not find you unbearable i completely agree do you have any more questions or do we do you think we got through the uh, the reader mail pretty well i think look i think we got through the reader mail pretty well i mean there's a few others but i think that we've talked for a very long time already uh yeah. this podcast for the grab bag so we should do this again because i think it's uh it, it's been a really good uh episode to run through and sort of talk through some of the stuff that comes in so again if you ever have questions email us podcast at vinepair.com we love to get uh all the reader questions i mean all the listener questions um sorry we call we keep saying reader because of the, the site but it is listeners um, so thank you so much. Any listener questions, uh, continue to send to us. We will try to answer them as fast as we can. Also, I promise you, those of you that have emailed in, you probably know this. We do get back to you personally as well. So uh, send us whatever your thoughts are. We'd love to hear from you. And we will see you right back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The Vinepair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patrie. We're recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.